0: Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Good to be with you. Good to be uh, in uh, and with the people of God uh, to gather and to sit under His Word, to sing His Word, to pray His Word, to hear His Word preached, um, and to fellowship in and around His Word. Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help for this incredible text that we are about to study. Father, You and Your Word are far more precious than I can hope to show in my own power and strength. Therefore, I pray, Holy Spirit, breathe on the preaching of your word to reveal the glorious Son, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I would imagine most, most young families, as our young family, have random competitions that just kind of happen. When you have kids and you have parents and you have tasks to do, sometimes random competitions just begin to happen. My favorite competition with our kids, or one of them at least, when they were younger was this little competition that started to happen, uh, especially, again, when Noah was about three or four years old, our youngest, at bedtime usually, and the competition would be around who loved uh, who the most. So there would be a little competition, and I would say something to Noah, like, I love you more than all the blades of grass in the world. And he'd say, wow, that's a lot. And then he would return and say something like, I love you more than all the fish in the ocean. Now, I loved it in one part because it was sweet, but also because I got to see his development understanding of the world begin to expand, and his definition of what big was, and how he would attempt to compete back and forth. The rest of the family would get in on the competition. Rachel might say, I love you more than all the stars in the sky. Eden would chime in, more than all the grains of sand on all the beaches in all the world. Nias might jump in and say, more than all the feathers on all the birds in the whole world. And then somehow, inevitably, it would uh, always be the case that we would go from the amount to the size. So there'd be a switch, and it would have to do with animals. So it would turn to something like, I love you bigger than an elephant or bigger than a T-Rex. And eventually, as we would do this, the trump card would always come out. Someone would say, I love you bigger than a blue whale. And at that point, the game is kind of over. Over 100 feet long, 400,000 pounds, with a heart the size of a dairy cow. (laughs) It's the biggest. (laughs) But then one, one time, probably Nias, I don't remember which kid it was, probably Nias, our most competitive of our three children, probably Nias figured out, as we said, I love you bigger than a blue whale. He said, I love you bigger than the daddy blue whale. <laughs> From then on, that, uh, the daddy blue whale became the trump card. So inevitably, when we would play this game and this competition would be going and we would start it and we'd start to figure out and compete, somebody would just jump to the front and immediately end the thing say, daddy blue whale. They wouldn't even say, I love you more than They would just say, daddy blue whale. And the game was over. That was the trump card. That was the I love you trump card. Today we follow Jesus into the garden of Gethsemane. And in the coming weeks we will follow him to the cross of Calvary. And this is the daddy blue well of God's love on display. This is the trump card of how and how much God loves us. Indeed, John says, for God so loved the world, meaning in this manner, in this way God loved the world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Today as we follow Jesus into the garden of Gethsemane, We see him abandoned by his closest friends, anticipating the agony of propitiating the wrath of God for our sins, and it's weighty, it's heavy. This is a solemn and massive scene in the scriptures, one that is painful and difficult to think about and watch, and even as you try to understand the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ together in this hypostatic union, what is on display in his emotions as he anticipates the cross? There is grief and glory to Gethsemane. With God's help, I hope to show you both a grief that's so agonizing that the Lord Jesus is near death just thinking about what's about to happen. But a glory that is connected to this agony. He subjected himself to this grief because of his great love with us. There's a grief and a glory in Gethsemane. We see in this text, Christ proclaimed that all of his disciples will abandon him. And then he experiences this utter aloneness in anticipation of the cross. And our big idea this morning is we want to think about this grief and glory of Gethsemane. Understanding Christ's unique aloneness in his suffering on our behalf should lead us to grieve our sin and glory in our Savior. Understanding his unique aloneness in suffering on our behalf should lead us to grieve our sin and glory in our savior if you want a title this morning the grief and glory of gethsemane we'll take it in two parts first part he understands the agony of abandonment jesus understands the agony of abandonment and again to remind you where we were two weeks ago when we left off the passover meal has just been transformed into what we call the lord's supper jesus just finished this meal the passover meal with his disciples He transformed it into the Lord's Supper because he is indeed our Passover lamb who was slain to to take on the judgment of God so that the judgment of God might pass over those underneath his blood. And then chapter 26, verse 30, we read, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they finished the meal by singing a hymn, probably from the Psalms. So even just pay attention and note this, the Son of God sings his way into suffering. Jesus worships his way unto God's wrath. So just in passing, as we think about this reality that Christ, as he's going into this great moment of suffering, is singing his way there, reminds us and teaches and shows us that corporate worship through song is not merely some religious tradition. It's preparation to suffer well. Singing God's praises today will help you suffer faithfully tomorrow. Corporate singing is like a battle cry before walking out into the battle. And then we read in verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, quoting from Zechariah 13, verse 7. Jesus knows and even proclaims right here that all of his closest friends will abandon him at his moment of great suffering. Not ultimately because they will be afraid, though surely they will be afraid, Not ultimately because they aren't loyal, though Peter will put on display uh, disloyalty in denying him three times. Not ultimately because they are weak, though their bodies are exhausted and sleepy. But ultimately, they will abandon him because it is written. Jesus understands and knows that he is the fulfillment of all scripture. He understands that the story of redemption as recorded in the scripture has him and his cross at the center that at the center of the 66 books recorded in Holy Scripture is Christ and his cross, and all of it is pointing to him and this moment. After his resurrection, he makes this explicit on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, summarizing the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Friends, if you understand the scriptures, you understand the scriptures are telling this great story of Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected in order that the nations might be forgiven and reconciled to God. Jesus knows his disciples will abandon him. He knows he will be crucified. He knows he will resurrect. He knows because this is what the Holy Spirit has revealed in Scripture. This is the plan A of redemption, and there is no plan B. But notice he drops a confident ray of hope in the dark night of Gethsemane. Chapter 26, verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Even in these dark moments, Jesus is confident he will walk out of the tomb. And he gives his disciples that hope. So not only does his sing, not only does he sing his way into suffering, he hopes his way to and through suffering. This is why the author of Hebrews says, "Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross." He knows he will be abandoned. He knows he's about to suffer. He knows he's going to die, but he also knows he will resurrect. And he's confident in the plan even during his agony. In anticipation of agony, he's singing hopeful and confident in his father. Christ Jesus is a perfect picture of being truly human in true suffering. However, in stark contrast to Jesus, all too often we, like his disciples, think, hey, I think I got a better plan than you. Verse 33, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So Jesus, the eternal son of God, says, it is written and planned in eternity past that you'll all fall away. Peter and the disciples and us are like, nah, that's not going to (laughs) happen. Jesus is like, no, no, it's been eternally written and eternally planned. And I'm the son of God. And we're like, nah, we got a better plan. We won't follow, even if we got to die with you. Peter answered him, verse 33, though they all fall, I will never fall. Jesus says, truly, I'll say to you three times this very night. Now, this is not the first time Peter's pushed back at Jesus' talk about being crucified. If you remember back in chapter 16, he rebuked Christ. We read in verse 21. For at that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So we've seen from beginning to end of this gospel, rejecting the cross of Christ is satanic. This is even what Satan tempted Jesus with in Matthew chapter 4, the third temptation was, hey, if you'll just bow down and worship me, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth without going to the cross is the implication. Instead of suffering to redeem all humanity here, just bow down and worship me, Satan said, and then you can have it. Even here, Peter's like, no, no, far be it from you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This, Satan always wants the cross erased from history. Satan always wants you to not think through the cross of Christ. He, never want, he wants you to make sure you don't understand the gravity and the weight of why did the Son of God have to suffer and die? Peter's learned this lesson. He remembers that surely, that rebuke. Surely he has in his mind, in his own discipleship to Christ. Man, that was that one time I rebuked Jesus. That wasn't smart. <laughs> Regret that one. He called me Satan afterwards. <laughs> so he knows, okay, I can't this time. I've learned from that, so I can't say no cross for you. But said, what does he say this time? I'll die with you. And even if I have to, I'll die with you. You won't be alone. I'll be with you. But he won't. He will deny Jesus three times this very night. He and indeed all the disciples will abandon Jesus. Again, even right now, before we even get to the denial, we see Peter's weakness and his devotion's weakness as he falls asleep three different times in Gethsemane while Christ asks him to pray. So the march to Calvary is progressing. They've concluded the supper with a hymn. They've gone to the Mount of Olives where Jesus predicted they would abandon him. And Jesus will suffer and die alone. He understands the agony of abandonment. Secondly, he understands the agony of anticipating agony. He understands the agony of anticipating agony. See, anticipating of agony is an agony all its own. The anticipation of agony is a particular kind of agony. Consider your feeling, that anxious feeling, when you have to go to the dentist to get some work done. No offense to my dentist who is here this morning. There's a kind of agony that anticipates what's going to happen when I get there. Think about the pain of walking into a conversation you dread because you know a heated conflict is coming. Think about getting called into the boss's office in the middle of company layoffs. Or that feeling you have when you're about to catch a cramp. Anticipation of agony is an agony all its own. And even these examples I've given to you are relatively small agonies. Imagine if you were on death row and it was the week of your execution. What your mind would be doing every night as your head hits the pillow. Anticipation of agony is an agony all its own. And the agony of Christ, the agony he's anticipating is unlike any agony any human being has ever experienced. It's as if Gethsemane is right beside the Niagara Falls of God's wrath and Jesus knows he's about to go over there and drink it down to the last drop. I wonder how much you know about Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls State Park reports that over 3,000 tons of water flows over the falls every second. That's 757,000 gallons of water per second. They fall at a rate of 32 feet per second, hitting the base of two of the falls with 280 tons of force and over 25 tons, 100 tons of force at one of the other falls. For perspective, if you're about 160 pounds and you're going 30 miles an hour in a car and you hit a wall, that's going to be about anywhere between 2 and 12 tons of force. The bottom of the falls, about 140 to 200 times more intense than that. What is my point? There is more righteous wrath in God against sin than there are gallons of water coming over the Niagara Falls. And Romans 3 tells us, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means wrath absorber. God's wrath can't just disappear. It must be satisfied. It must be poured out. It must be absorbed. It must go somewhere. Christ came to take it so that sinners could be saved and God's justice could be satisfied. That's why we see Jesus agonizing in the garden and turning to his father in intimate prayer because he's anticipating all of that wrath being drank by him. Verse 36, we read again that Jesus went to them with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now It's important you understand that Gethsemane was a common place they used to meet during the Passover week. We know that from Luke's account in chapter 22, verse 39 to 41. This was their normal campsite, if you will. They probably had beloved memories of fellowship and teaching over the last few days, possibly in Passover's past. And this is significant. Why? Because Jesus knows Judas is out trying to betray him. And yet he's going to the place they always go at the time they always go there. He knows I'm going to the cross. He knows he's going to be betrayed. And he's not hiding. He's not running from it. He means to suffer and die in order to save sinners. And so he knows I'm going to keep the schedule as it is knowing good and well. Judas will know this is a good place to betray me. He will not avoid his cross. Instead, he will go to his father in intimate prayer and ask for help. Verse 37. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. we got to stop just a second and pay attention to what's happening right here. This is the king of all kings. Even as we've studied through Matthew's gospel account, it's put on display the sovereign rulership of the Lord Jesus. Think about how we've watched Christ flex his kingly nature. How we watched him flex his sovereign rule and control over all things. This is the king who walked on water in the midst of a storm. This is the king who cast out a legion of demons into a herd of pigs. Who taught with authority that left people amazed, wondering where he got this authority from. This is a king who, who, who approached and confronted the most intimidating religious leaders of his day. The One who healed the sick, the paralytic, the blind, the mute, and the deaf. The one who raised a dead girl back to life. The one who pronounced woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, turned over tables in the temple. The king who demonstrated sovereign control over death, disease, demons, destruction, his disciples, and even his enemies. This same king is depressed nearly to death. We haven't seen King Jesus like this in this gospel yet. This is a stark contrast. We've seen his sovereign power again and again and again. And he says, my soul is so troubled, I'm about to die. We find out from Dr. Luke in his account that while praying, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So he's in so much depressed agony that he's literally sweating drops of blood. The soul of the Son of God is troubled nearly to death. Standing beside the Niagara Falls of God's wrath awaiting him is staggering and leading his soul to great suffering. No other human being has ever tasted depression like this. What a moment. We see in this moment a staggering picture of Jesus' humanity. The doctrine of his incarnation, is on display. The Son of God became a man. Jesus, though, truly God, is truly man. Again, this is the mystery of the hypostatic union. And in this moment, he's experiencing as a true man what a true man would be experiencing in this horrific moment, anticipating taking on the full wrath of God for sinners, though he had none of his own. He's experiencing the totality of human experience as he stands beside the Niagara Falls of God's wrath, understanding, I'm going to get that. And this is not primarily... The staggering is not primarily reality of the gruesome death that has has him staggering. He said from early on he was going to die. No, he's experiencing what a sinner would be experiencing before eternal judgment. Yet he has no sin of his own. For our sake, he God made him Christ to be no to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's anticipating the fear of what it looks like to be judged by God when you're a sinner, though he is not a sinner. Friend, if you've ever felt anxious or depressed, know that you've never felt as anxious and depressed as Christ does in this moment. Now, I do not say that to minimize your anxiety or even the pain plenty of you have uh, have experienced as you've anticipated suffering you knew that was coming. Some of you guys have been through more horrific suffering and pain than I could ever imagine. But you have not been through more pain and suffering than Christ could imagine. It's never been true that no one understands what you've been through. It's true that no one understands what he's been through. He understands what all of us have been through. The Son of God in this moment is literally depressed nearly unto death. In this moment, to those who felt crippled by your anxiety and depression or by the agony of anticipating agony as a victim, know that Christ understands experientially. He doesn't understand like somebody who read a book about it. He doesn't understand like someone who's heard about that before. He understands as one who's gone through worse than what you have. So his compassion, his empathy, his understanding of what you've been through is even better than your understanding of what you've been through. Again, only Christ can say no one understands what I've been through because only Jesus suffered sinlessly. The rest of us have suffered as imperfect sinners. But he suffered as the sinless Savior. He understands. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He knows, he understands, he's with you even in the midst of great suffering. So remember, think about the what of this moment, but also remember the why of this moment. Why is the Son of God going through this? Why is he sweating great drops of blood? We found out from the opening pages of this gospel account in chapter one, verse 21, the son of man uh, came to save his people from their sins. He's he's sweating great drops of blood, anticipating the wrath of God owed to you for the sexual sin you committed this week. He's anticipating the wrath of God owed to you for the gossip you, you shared in this week. To the anger and bitterness bound up in your heart. To the laziness that dominates your work ethic and your spiritual life. To the lies you tell to make yourself look better and other people look worse. He's anticipating drinking the wrath of God for the vanity and pride in your heart and in my heart. He's taking on the wrath of God for the approval of man idolatry displayed in your obsession with getting more likes on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. He's thinking about taking the wrath of God for your materialism or my materialism, for your failure as a spouse and a parent, your pornography addiction or gambling addiction or drug or alcohol or screen addiction, your approval addiction, your anxiety addiction, your control addiction. He's taking on the wrath of God for you not loving and serving other people as you're called to, your sin, my sin, our sin. That's why the king says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He asked his disciples to watch with him as he seeks his father in prayer. Verse 39, and going on a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Three times we see the humanity of Christ long for companionship in his suffering. Three times we see his friends fall asleep. Three times he calls out to his father, Is there another way? Three times the father answers with silence. He surrenders his will in prayer. There is no other way. The Father would have provided it if there had been any other way to make sinners right with a just God. But King Jesus must drink the cup in our place if we're to be saved. He's the only one qualified to drink this cup and survive. He's truly man. He must suffer and die as man because man sinned, but he's truly God. He's the only one who can suffer and die and then get up from death. He's the only one qualified. Three times he said, "Is there another way?" Three times he heard silence. But praise God! Three times he said, "Not my will, but yours be done." Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, for sinners to be saved. The Son of God must be crushed. Praise God for Jesus' resolve to do the Father's will. John four thirty four. He actually said, "My food." My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, my nourishment, my soul is fed by obeying my father. That's what nourishes and feeds my soul. There is no resolve like the resolve of Christ to obey the father's will. There is no obedience like the perfect obedience of Christ to obey his father. There is no love like the love of God in Christ. Verse 45, he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's time. He wrestled in prayer. He sweat great drops of blood, anticipating the agony that he was going to experience underneath the Niagara Falls of God's wrath. In his humanity, he asked for another path, but he's embraced that there is no other path. And in his prayer with his Father... In this moment, he gains strength such that he says to his disciples, rise, get up, it's game time. So he goes truly human saying, God, is there another way? Because I understand exactly what I'm about to suffer underneath. Not my will, but yours be done. Ah, y'all asleep, wake up. Spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. Father, if there's no other way, I'll drink it. Not my will, but yours be done. Ah, wake up, be with me, pray with me. Pray, you don't understand what's coming. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Fellas, get up. It's time. These prayers, he goes from face down before the Father to saying to the disciples, rise. He's walking into the Father's will. The Son of God must take on the wrath of God alone to bring sinners back to God. Christ understands the agony of anticipating agony. He's anticipating taking on the judgment of God. He knows what it's like to fear just judgment. So praise God in our loneliness, our anxiety, our depression, our agony, in our anticipating of agony, we can never say no one understands, for only our Savior can say that. He understands our suffering, but only he understands his suffering. Even as Isaiah prophesied earlier, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Again, the main point, the big idea this morning, understanding Christ's unique aloneness in his suffering on our behalf should lead us to grieve our sin and glory in our Savior. I want to take the rest of our time and make those two applications and talk about those two applications. So two applications, grieve your sin and glory in your Savior. First application, grieve your sin. Not only was Christ's blood poured out on the cross, it was forced out of his sweat glands in Gethsemane for your sin, for my sin. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. The path from Gethsemane to Calvary shows you how serious your sin is. Don't look away from how much your sin cost. Don't ignore it. Christ paid your debt in full with his blood. That's how serious your sin is. So it's, it's don't take your sin lightly. Like, do you understand to take sin lightly? And be like, ah, everybody's a sinner and we all do it. That's like spitting on him while he's sweating out great drops of blood. Take your sin seriously, all of it, all of it, all of it. He had to pour out his blood for you. So we don't take sin lightly. We take it seriously, we understand, no, no, sin cost my Savior his life. And so I hate my sin, I want to kill my sin. Paul says in Romans eight thirteen, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So no, no, we see our sin, and by the Spirit, we said we put it to death, we kill our sin, we hate our sin, we flee from our sin, and we run to Christ. All too often, immature Christians act like sin's not a big deal. Even sometimes super deep Christians Think they're being super deep by acting like it's not a big deal. I don't care how reformed you are in your soteriology. Sin is a big deal. You should hate it. Understanding it is finished makes you hate your sin, not not think it's a big deal. So grieve your sin. Don't look away. Look at it and see what it cost Christ. Hate your sin. Again, 1 John 1, uh, 1, 5 um, through 9. Verse 9 particularly says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all righteousness. So see it, grieve it, and confess it and ask for forgiveness. So we have a pastoral prayer every week where we stop and pause for a moment to confess your sin to God. It's a big deal. Look at Gethsemane. Look at Calvary. It's a big deal. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse you. But don't pretend like it's not there. You pretend like your sin's not there, you'll stay a spiritual baby the rest of your life. You can be 70 years old and acting like an infant spiritually. You don't confess your sin, grieve your sin, flee from your sin. Consider praying through Psalm 51, David's prayer of confession after his adultery and, and, and his guilt of murder, where he's going through it. And if you just wonder, how to, what does it look like to confess sin, to grieve sin, to feel sin? Pray Psalm 51. Just put yourself in that scenario and confess your sin. But don't stop there. That's application number one, grieve your sin. Application number two, glory in your Savior. Don't stop at grief. Don't, like, please don't do the first application and not get to the second one. <laughs> do the first one, but don't stop. Move from grieving your sin to glorying in your Savior. Robert Murray McShane, Presbyterian minister, said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in His beams, fill His all-seeing eyes, settle on you in love and repose in His almighty arms. So grieve your sin, but glory in your gracious Savior. Glory in what Jesus has done. How do you do that? Just like what, is it, what does it look like practically, to glory in my Savior? Rest, not in your devotion to Christ, but his devotion to you. That's where you find rest. Think about the disciples, right? They all abandoned him. Peter's going to deny him on this night three times. They're all going to abandon him in this moment. You will fail. He never will fail. Your devotion to Christ will wax and wane. Your devotion to Christ will go up and down. His devotion to you will never fail. So you glory in your Savior, understanding, no, it's your devotion to me I'm banking on, not my devotion to you. That's not in contradiction to the first application. That's how you make the first application. Oh, my sin is so wicked. Praise God for my Savior. Oh, my devotion is so up and down. Praise God, my Savior's devotion is not up and down. He went through Gethsemane. He went to Calvary. He did die for me and he did rise on the grave. That devotion is everything I'm banking on, nothing of my own. But also remember, he understands. So glory in your Savior. Remember, he understands. Whatever you're going through, abandonment, loneliness, depression, you don't fully understand his, but he fully understands yours. You are known. You are understood. So again, I'm not meaning to minimize. Some of you have been through stuff I could never imagine, but he can, and he knows even worse. Therefore, you know when you come to Christ as Savior and King, you come to one who understands your suffering to the uttermost. He knows the pain. He knows the fear. He knows the agony. He knows who did it. He knows how long. He knows why. He knows how it hurt. He knows the agony in your soul, and he's there to heal. He knows. So understand, he understands. So glory in your Savior saying, like, I don't come to a God who's far removed and distant and doesn't understand, but one who literally came as a human to experience suffering as I have. This is why the writer of Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So again, rest not in your devotion to Christ, but his devotion to you. Remember he understands. And lastly, experience his love. Experience his love. Again, John 10, 18. I'm going to keep coming back to this one every single week in this sermon series. No one takes it from me, Jesus says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. John 6, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. Christ died for you because he wanted to wasn't forced into it love bid him come and die he agreed with the father and the holy spirit three persons one god try you and godhead in eternity past to come suffer and die in order to redeem and save sinners you could say he ate the food of the father's will and washed it down with a cup of the father's wrath so that you might eat the bread of life and wash it down with a cup of salvation what love you want to know how much God loves you? Follow Jesus from Gethsemane to Calvary. For God shows his love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, get yourself together, clean your life up, then I will die for you at your worst. No, that's when he died for you. Experience this love. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you. Christ has done everything necessary because God loves you. He stood under the Niagara Falls of God's wrath that you could stand under the Niagara Falls of God's love. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this When we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the links to which God's love goes in order to win us back to Himself. We would almost think God loved us more than He loves His Son. We cannot measure His love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. The cross is the heart of the gospel. It makes the gospel good news. Christ died for us. He stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. God has done something on the cross which we could never do for ourselves. But listen to this. But God does something to us as well as for us through the cross. He persuades us that he loves us. This is how much he loves you. From Gethsemane to Calvary, he called Daddy Blue Well. Game over. No one can love bigger than this one. No love can be displayed bigger than this one. And his heart is bigger than the heart of a blue whale. His affection is greater. He's demonstrated his love in the cross. Christian, rest in his devotion to you. Know that he understands. Experience this love. Feel this love. Listen, Christianity is not merely this intellectual, theological ascent to data and and truths. It is that. It's not merely that. It's truth that transforms your affections in your heart because God is saying, I love you this much. And that love is what leads you to return love back to him. You ought to feel something. If you don't feel something, something's wrong. Now, how you express how you feel, that's personality. Amen. Do your thing. That's culture. That's personality. That's fine. But you ought to feel something because of what's true. God is saying, I love you this much non-Christian friend, what else more could God do to persuade you? He loves you. He sent his only son to drink his wrath that you might drink the cup of salvation. Look to him even today. Let's close in prayer.